I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, a retrieval of the great arts of conversation, connection, and conspiracy. It's time to breathe together on behalf of all living things and celebrate the power of finding meaning together. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing guest host in a special reverse interview episode of Team Human today, psychologist, sociologist, MIT professor, the author of Reclaiming Conversation and the Empathy Diaries, and charter member and guiding light for Team Human, Sherry Turkle. Technology doesn't just change what we do, it changes who we are. We all have skin in this game. Sherry, who witnessed the mindset in action herself at MIT in the early 90s, will be helping me share some of my experiences with these men, yes, men, and understand them in the greater context of the fear of intimacy and quest for domination fueling so many of their exploits. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I've been having quite a couple of weeks since the launch of this book, uh, Survival of the Richest. I did a big uh, excerpt in The Guardian of London. I get tons of emails from people who I guess they don't see the very beginning and the end that says this is an excerpt from a book. They just want more information. Tell me more. Tell me more. I'm like, God, the more is there, though. <laughs> this is an excerpt. It's frustrating. But, but what's actually... More, I, I was going to say frustrating, but let's say interesting, is that everybody is really fixed on the apocalypse bunkers and spaceships and shock collars and Navy SEALs that are in the fantasies of the tech billionaires and others who want to escape before the event happens. But there's a whole lot less interest 
and what I'm calling the mindset, which is the, the, the circumstances and an understanding of the world that's leading them to think and act this way in the first place. And what I'm realizing is that our fascination with these catastrophes themselves, with the climate disaster and social upheaval and electromagnetic pulse and bunker strategies and all those things, that that's kind of a symptom of the mindset. That's almost a symptom of the thing I'm talking about, that we're so fixated on the figure that we can't see the ground. We can see the subject of the picture, you know, the, 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 the Trump or the wall or the vaccine or whatever it is, but not the landscape in which the figure is standing. And that's what lies at the heart of the tech industry's, you know, uh, kind of awful and, and unintended consequences on the world. Our, our investors and the and the young developers in their in their thrall they are so single-mindedly focused on the mega hit capable of delivering their hockey stick returns and their exit strategy and their home run they, they focus on on product and they put boundaries around the product and the business as if everything else the rest of the world everything leading up to it and that happens after it those are all externalities. They don't have any ability or, or desire to consider the world, the environment in which the product is operating. It's all just, just background to them. You know, and this is this is a really old problem, and I try to talk about it in the book, but people would have to read the book. They'd have to follow through. It's like, yeah, there's the hook, bunkers, apocalypse. These guys want to get off the planet. Well, why, right? Well, why? Then you kind of go back to people like John Locke, you know, the Enlightenment philosopher who who was describing the kind of uh, uh, pre-civilized state of nature that Native Americans were in. We're supposed to understand them as just literally a part of the landscape. He said, I've got the quote here. He said... The Native American is is no different than, quote, one of those wild, savage beasts with whom men can have no society or security and therefore may be destroyed as a lion or a tiger. Right. Now, this is a respected philosopher of the time. Anyway, that's what he's saying. So the, 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 the features of the landscape, whether they are trees or animals or water or humans, they're only important when they step in the frame as figures, as as threats, as some kind of, of existential risk. Then they become the subjects of the story. Right. So so as long as you can you can, you know, find someone who's who's willing to, to jump in and serve as that figure, then they will get attention. Then we're ready to grab our, our pitchfork. So you can you can look at, you know, uh, Trump or the war in Ukraine or Uvalde as like, okay, there's the thing. And of course, because it's a figure and we're not looking at the history, we're not looking at the ground, it lasts like three days, then we move on to the next one. And I feel like God, I should have mentioned this guy in the book. Yeah, I feel like I'm talking about you know Stanley Kubrick's movie, uh, uh, Doctor Strangelove, which has the great subtitle, uh, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. You know, that movie, it ended with all these dozens of film clips of atomic mushroom clouds. And I thought, you know, it's as if to tell us not don't worry about the bomb, but but that we're looking in the wrong place. It's not the bomb that's the problem so much as the society and the systems 
pushing us towards self-destruction. It, it, it's that stuff. Anyway, please read the book, steal the book. You'll see it's, it's important to understand where this come from. That's the way to diffuse it, not to go with pitchforks, not to seek revolution, not to focus on the figure, but to re-engage with the ground. And there's really no one better to do that with than uh, Dr. Sherry Turkle, uh, one of my uh, great friends and and compatriots, colleagues, uh, co-conspirators in the uh, in the effort to uh, restore not just a sense of agency to people, but the ability for people to connect with each other through conversation and to expand their awareness to see uh, the world in which we're living rather than just the uh, the figures on the screen. So here's my reverse interview, which is a great gift from my friend Sherry Turkle to me and I think all of us. So for people who don't know, we're here with Dr. Sherry Turkle, who uh, written books from Life on the Screen through Alone Together and Reclaiming Conversation to last year's beautiful uh, The Empathy Diaries, a graduate of Abraham Lincoln High School on Ocean Parkway, go rail splitters, through her PhD at Harvard and now endowed chair at MIT. I love that you went to Ocean Parkway to Lincoln High School because I feel like sometimes like us public school kids who ended up among the Ivy Leaguers and tech elite, we've, we've spent our lives and careers trying to convince these dudes how to feel or convincing them that intimacy is a more fulfilling option than domination. Almost like having grown up on the lower decks of the Titanic, we could go (laughs) up and see those guys in the suits and say, oh my God, you don't know how to look in each other's eyes. Yeah. And so thanks so much for offering to engage with me on the occasion. Well, my pleasure. I've always considered you one of my people. I'm on your team human. I was on your team human before Before. you said there was a team human. (laughs) No, well, you inspired and informed uh, uh, everything. I mean, in no small part, without you, there would be no me. Your books have been such a gift to me. They are an act of friendship and kindness. And you you. acknowledging my existence is is so affirming for me as a thinker. Well, let's not not push this too far. Anyway. Well, it's true, though. It's affirming. We're on the same page. We're on the same team. And and it's really a pleasure. And we don't get to talk enough in person or, or on Zoom. And I just take this as a wonderful opportunity both to celebrate this wonderful new book, Mm by Doug, Survival (laughs) of the Richest, which really is a uh, compelling read that tries to say why we have come to a very bad place, Mm. that it's not an accident that we're in a very bad place. And I think it gives people a language for talking about why we're in this very bad place. And I hope that we get a chance in our conversation to talk about that. Please. That we're not just in this very, yeah, that we're just, we're not in this very bad place because Mark Zuckerberg wants to be rich or too many people want to be rich or, you know, we're in this very bad place because the people who've been in charge of getting us to this very bad place really don't understand or don't care about important things about how people work, how societies work how democratic politics work. Yeah. And I think you make a very compelling argument for that. So I think it's a very important book. Thanks. But it's also a compelling read. I just wrote a <laughs> memoir 
And I tried uh, the Empathy Diaries, mm-hmm. and I tried in my memoir to integrate the story of my life and the passions in my life, the loves of my life, with the intellectual quest of my life, which is to talk in many times about the same questions you do about technology and why it doesn't care about empathy, mm-hmm. why it doesn't care about people. And I think that in your own way, you know, you've used many of your personal experiences to illuminate your larger points. And so I think it is, that's what makes it uh, also a very compelling read. Oh, So I'm excited that we're having this chance for a true dialogue, a conversation. Me too. Yeah, it's definitely the first time I've organized a book around my own experience, around stories and people rather than ideas. I always felt safer. You know, it's an idea, it's a polemic, I can say anything I want. Right. Now, if you're like, okay, I was in a room with these people and this happened and I felt like this and then they said that, it changes things. It, you know, it's like it I've does. got skin in the game. Yes, but <laughs> I think that is the point that I've been trying to make all my, you know, all my professional life. Technology doesn't just change what we do. It changes who we are. We mm. all have skin in this game. And we all are being changed in our very nature by this technology. So the stories of who you meet, how you try to justify yourself, how they make you feel, mm. that, that when you're talking to, to people who are true believers, you start to feel, oh, maybe I don't know anything. You know, what's wrong with me? So many times in your book, when you describe being at a conference, you know, you, you describe yourself as it's all men, but you're the only humanist. <laughs> well, when I'm at these conferences, it's all men. I'm the only humanist and I'm the only woman, right. you know what I mean? So there's kind of one yeah. more level of being how I can be dismissed. But I so often feel, my God, there are 10 billionaires around the table and I earn $100,000 mm. a <laughs> university professor, you know. Maybe they know, do they know something, you know, do they know something that I don't know? And then I just have to remind myself no, they're forgetting something that I don't forget. Right. And I think that what your book does is it reminds the reader of what we are forgetting when we buy in mm. to technologically driven myths. It's not just that we that they're asking us to learn something new or go along with something important that they think is important. They're asking us to forget something essential mm. about what it is to be human. I just went to a presentation about changing your dreams with AI. Aye. The details aren't important, but essentially it will change your dreams. You'll have dreams that will make you more productive <laughs> by a standard measure of productivity. Okay. And there was no engaging with this group of AI folks about what might be lost if we didn't have our own dreams. And so I guess my first question to you, is there a function to our processing the dreams that authentically came from our experience, as opposed to you giving me dreams that aren't my experience? No, because our dreams are proven to have an output of productivity. What about that my dreams are my dreams? You know, there was no engaging. Right. And so could you describe for our listeners what seemed to you the most dramatic times 
in which you felt this frustration that I was feeling. It's interesting because, I mean, I get what they're saying, you know, and if you understand people in utilitarian terms, then sure, let's make their dreams, you know, they'll be better. And the problem is when you say, what other metric would you like us to use? And it's like, well, what? I don't know if I have a metric for this because it's so complex and perhaps useless in it's like junk dna when they're so ready to get rid of junk dna in their analysis of genes and i'm like well how do you know that that that's could be our entire biological memory in their junk dna just we don't need that it's right. just noise you know, so i guess the time for me at it's a, the book is uh when i felt the most frustrated this way was when i finally got to meet richard dawkins the great evolutionary biologist and he was trying to explain memes to some of um you know john brockman's gathered edge scientists and uh, it's at Brockman's apartment, and he, you know, he explained memes. He made one of those little fold-up fortune teller origami things, and said, "This is a meme, and we read. It comes back every few years, and everybody knows how to make it." It's a little cootie. It was yeah. a little cootie thing. Cootie that catcher. The kids yeah. make. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, one of those. And because we know the code for how to make one, it can come back in perfect fidelity in all these other moments. But his his understanding of memes was that human beings are just like record players, that we're not really conscious, that we just play whatever memes have infected us, and that we're not actively participating. There's nothing to see here, nothing going on. And I talked about empathy and identification with others. And he goes, well, that's all part of survival. That's, you know, reciprocal altruism. And it's this, and, you know, your DNA creates the illusion of consciousness and love and caring and all that so that you go about your tasks. And he was asking me to prove that there's something else here using the evidentiary rules of scientism. And that was this trap. And I I spent so many years frustrated that I couldn't come up with proof of the unprovable, you know, the ineffable. And it was awful. And these men, I mean, I I was young and I so looked up (laughs) to these people, but they laughed at me at this. They laughed at me. They called me a, a moralist which I didn't even quite know what that means, but some kind of, you know, rabbi, superstitious, God-believing, spiritual, new age joke compared to them. You know, and the comeuppance, although it's a sad comeuppance, the, the comeuppance for me is when I see them in pictures on, uh, you know, Jeffrey Epstein's plane on the Lolita Express. And I realize, okay, right. if you are an amoralist, you know, then your ideas about humanity are going to dovetail just too conveniently with this dominator mindset that's you know, way older than, than technology. You know, this, you need, you use this science as an excuse to dominate and abuse other people rather than to try to forge any kind of connection with them. Right. So it was sad, you know, and that does keep happening. Well, one of the interesting questions that you posed that you wanted to ask me mm. was, did I think I was winning? Mm. You know, did I think since I've been in the same kinds of dialogues as you, did I think I was winning? And I'd have to say, no, I don't really think Mm -hmm. I'm winning. Because in my part of this discourse, I've spent at least 30 years, and certainly the years since the advent of social media in full force, 
documenting harms, depression, FOMO, a kind of this alone together sense Mm. of a kind of existential loneliness where you're talking more and more, but about less and less, you, you know, you, you trivialize discourse because how much can you do if, if, if you're just trying to project a self that will be appealing, but isn't you because you can make yourself more appealing and who doesn't want to do that? I mean, all of the ways in which social media has given us the option of being not authentic and how dangerous that is in particular for adolescents. Anyway, this long list of harms and political harms and divisiveness. And yet we come out of the pandemic when optimistically I thought we might be taking a step back Mm -hmm. and saying, okay, enough. You know, we have saturated ourselves. And now we can do something else. And the industry comes right back with, now we're going to the metaverse. Now they sell to schools. Let's teach in the metaverse. Let's go to the metaverse. Let's, that's where we can be even more free of climate change, social inequality, all the things that we really can't fix here. We don't have the will to fix that. And so I was very struck in your, in your book about how you handle that and talk about what these now you you lay it on that they're the richest. Yeah. I wanted to get back to that. I mean I'm not sure it's just that they're the richest. Right. I think that it's they're the they're the people who were caught in this ideology. Mm-hmm. I mean it's not just that they're the richest. Where do you think their desire to metaverse themselves out of the human condition comes from. And then maybe we could yeah. talk about our, our differing views of, of their motivations, because you know them so well, you've been in those rooms with them over the over decades. It's interesting. I was going to ask you the same question. So it's changed. Well, I thought we would try to ask the same. Yeah, know. it's great. It, it, it changed for me, right? So at the beginning, I was a tech enthusiast because I was more from the kind of Timothy Leary, Terrence McKenna, psychedelic counterculture and thought that digital technologies would do for society what a psychedelic did for an individual, that it would open us and connect us. We would experience ourselves as part of some great rave dance fractal organism. And then I saw Wired Magazine. You were young. I was young. I know, and hopeful, and it's beautiful. It's all good. You know, I was a theater person. You know, I read Brenda Laurel, Computers as Theater, and it was, oh my God, it's the portal to the great improv, you know, the hypertext improv, and even Life on the Screen. I mean, Life on the Screen was from, a, ah, an optimistic, wonderful, ah, ah, such I was a, young. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but... Then I thought, okay, the big business came, you know, and and they they sold us out. They turned these technologies from uh, possibility makers into probability enforcers. We're going to turn technology on people in order to use uh, behavioral finance and influence techniques to get them to buy stuff, pay more attention, have sticky websites, you know, and we move into all this attention economy manipulation. But then... I start wondering, you know, and I I remembered when Timothy Leary read Stuart Brand's book on the Media Lab, on the early days of the Media Lab, and I thought he was loving it. And he finishes the book and he throws it across the room and he goes, like it was poison. And I said, what, what? And he goes, first, less than 3% of the names in that index are women. I said, wow. You know, that's late 80s. That was early to notice that. Sadly, that was early. And then he said, 
And second, these guys are trying to recreate the womb. Their mothers, very psychically here, he's a psychologist of a sort, and he goes, their mothers were unable to anticipate their every need, and now they want technology to fill in and to make up for the fact, you know, and they want to create a digital womb around themselves. So I'm wondering, and I've always wondered, is it the tech or is it the capitalism? And then I realized, you know, it's neither the tech nor the capitalism, but an approach to both. And they dovetail for sure. But the whether it's Peter Thiel saying go from zero to one as a business strategy, be one level above, aggregate your competition and rise above them and, you know, be the meta. Or Mark Zuckerberg, once his business plan for Facebook stops working, he wants to go meta one level above. Or Jeffrey Epstein looking at people as enslaved women, and he's going to be one level above them as a dictator. It looks like there's this I go back to your work or Rian Eisler and see, oh, there have been people trying to get one level above their other people throughout history. It's just now we have a technology that allows people to create the illusion, the, the simulation of doing that in a more compelling fashion than just having a castle. You know? Yeah. I mean, also, my take on this, and this is again, from conversations, not just with the rich technologists, which I think your book is so, mm. you know, portrays that, but from the baby technologists, the MIT students who were practicing to be these people, who were emulating these people and their ways of thinking, hoping one day to be them. Because I think that's the coda I would add to your work, mm. is that you're describing what it looks like when you have power but I live every day as a, as a teacher at MIT, as a professor at MIT, what it looks like on the ground when you're practicing how to grow up to be these people. So that it's very interesting. I think it's important to note that this just isn't what you can get to when you're rich. It's an ideology that trickles down to the people who are learning it as they practice as engineering students. It's a culture of engineering. Yeah. And it's a culture that sees the best life as a friction-free life. That's yeah. the way I've described it in mm. my own writing. The best things in life are friction-free. Bill Gates wrote that in his utopian books about, <laughs> about society. The best things in life are friction-free, like economic systems that can become friction-free. Mm. The best technologies make things friction-free. And if you can make social life friction-free, well, that's a big plus. Ugh. Now, what kinds of social life are friction-free? Certainly not, certainly not sex or child-rearing. <laughs> well, basically none, except if you have a fantasy. So you have to have a fantasy of what kind of authoritarian or non-relational social world can mm. be made friction-free. And essentially, the kind that is friction-free is the kind where you put it in virtual reality and where you can always leave, where you're, you know, something comes up that you don't like and you leave. You have a, an attribute that you don't like and you leave. Uh, with age, I've developed um, a very rough, a lot of people think always worry if I have COVID because my voice has developed a hoarseness, hmm. which is nothing. It's just, it's just something with age. I'd love to get rid of that. In virtual reality, I don't have to have that. I used to have a very beautiful <laughs> kind of tone, and now I don't. It's friction. It's the friction of being a human being, 
And in virtual reality, I don't have to have it. So that's the kind of things. And wouldn't we all like to change our looks and our, you know, I mean, in the metaverse, you can. When I wrote Life on the Screen, the case study after case study after case study was people telling me how they loved being able to change their shape, their size, their voice, their everything, everything they could to make themselves come closer to kind of their ego ideal of who Mm. they want to be. And so I think that the idea that we live in a world where the problems, the pollution, the violence, the disagreements, the fires, the pestilence, I mean, the problems we've created that demand such work. Well, I can go to another world where I don't need to deal with it. And I think that is driving a lot of the fantasy now. I mean, in some ways, that's the American way, right? So the West, the the unspoiled West. Yeah, right? my we we my grandparents escaped the pogroms in Kishinev. Right. Get out of there, and are so proud that they made it across Europe to America. Then my dad was raised in the tenements of the Lower East Side, and always told us, you know, I said I was going to get out of there and raise my family somewhere better. So the solution to living in squalor was I'm going to learn, get money, get out, and get. And we moved to better neighbor. We moved out of PS. I mean, I was PS seventy nine. We moved out of there to Larchmont because better, right? So at a certain point. There's when the whole world is the bad neighborhood, you know. Yeah. You, you can't leave. I mean, Bezos thinks he can, but you right. can't leave anymore. But they're modeling a behavior for the rest of us. Like during COVID, everyone wanted, oh, I'm going to get an Amazon doorbell and Fresh Direct and some do whatever I can to insulate myself. You know, and and you're right. And it's and then the baby young tech developers, people look at tech as well, the word I kept coming up that kept coming up for me as you were speaking was exit strategy. There's always a way yeah, out. Right. Well, that's why I think it's so significant that the people who you're describing, you know, while some, well, 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 the mini rich, the, well, the baby rich, just went to their summer homes in on the, you know, on the. I went to the Cape. <laughs> I, I spent COVID on the Cape. I should talk. I'm speaking here from my summer home on Cape Cod. You know where I spent COVID. We should also admit that while when you say and I could say the same thing, I can get like you know close to a hundred thousand dollars as a university professor. I consider that wealthy. I'm. Yes. I. You know we're good. This is good. Right, but I'm the good. people we're with would consider us poor. Right. Yes, but the point I was making <laughs> yeah. is that the desire to flee was universal. Yes. And then, of course, you point out very poignantly in your book that even the little mini fleeings that we could do to the Cape or to, uh, to a suburb or to, you know, to someplace in the country, these guys want to flee to outer space. Yeah. They, I mean, they, they want to go to outer space. They want to go to the metaverse. They want to go... You know, Earth really no longer feels safe enough. Right. And they want to is the thing. It's not like they have to or feel like they're wishing this. You know, when I see it's funny, like Peter Thiel just gave, you know, $15 million to J.D. Vance's political campaign. And it's not that a man as smart as Thiel believes that J.D. Vance has good policies. I genuinely believe that as an accelerationist, Peter Thiel thinks that this kind of 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 politician, this kind of government will hasten the collapse of this, of this thing, you know, just tear it down. I mean, I really do. There is, uh, 
you know, this is sort of beyond what I feel I can speak about with conviction, but there is a sense in which the turn of these techno bros to right-wing politics does feel like they're trying to accelerate the destruction so they can move on to the next phase. But the plan for the next phase, you know, what, are they watching Black Mirror? I mean, I, you know, where are they? Are they? Didn't they watch Blade Runner? I mean, like, I mean for well, them, the next, phase, for the next phase, it's some kind of a Sim City computer stack of programs. They, I've talked to the guys. Oh, well, this, this program yeah. does the hydroponic garden. This one does the solar right. energy. You know, and it's like, it's right. not that clean. Right. Well, as you pointed out, the, the, I really want to just, I am truly plugging this extraordinary <laughs> book. Because, you know, as, as Doug points out in this book, it's one thing to have a hydroponic garden on your Upper East Side townhouse. And when a mold grows that's not cool, you call your hydroponic, you know, gardener. And he comes in, he fixes the chemicals, and he puts in new plants, and he swaps it all out, and he puts in the water, and he fixes it. And, you know, a week later, you have a new hydroponic, you know, I mean, you've used the resources of Earth to restore your real-world hydroponic garden. If your hydroponic garden is like deep below the Earth in a sealed bunker, that's not going to happen you know, there's not going to be, Amazon is not going to deliver. You're not going to have the resources of the real. You're just going to have fungus potentially growing mm-hmm. all over your bunker. And I think that there's something about the lack of respect for the real. You know, the sense that when you are in the metaverse, the fact that the, the first pictures of the metaverse that Zuckerberg wasn't wasn't ashamed to put out had people cut off at the waist yeah. and like stick figures. And he said, look at this beautiful thing that I have. Look at where we can live. You can be in Paris. You can be at a cafe. Who would want to be in a metaverse cafe and not be in Paris? Why would I want to meet you? I mean, at least here you see me, you see him at the Cape, you see my, I have my picture that my five-year-old daughter made that I'm, you know, you see that I sort of have a funky little setup where I do my writing at the beach. I mean, yeah. it's a little real where I am. <laughs> you know, why would I, why would I want to meet you in a simulated French cafe? What does that do for me? Cut off at the waist, not my face at all, not my voice at all, so I can hide from you that I have this scratchy throat that that's who I am now it's hiding the body it's a fear of the body it's a fear of vulnerability it's a fear of what it is to be in the world and I think that it's the idea that we are following these people or that we think they have wisdom what they have is money yeah but I'm I am not pro metaverse and the fact that they have taken over education the fact that they have sold so much metaversial, you know, stuff in the world of education is is very concerning to me. And the same guys who are building businesses around putting our children in the metaverse for education send their kids to organic Rudolf Steiner schools up in the the woods. So they know, they know what they're doing is so, is awful for the young mind. Steve Jobs wouldn't let his kids touch a computer. Yeah. And he was he was right. 
because one of the questions you asked me, what do you think the smartest thing you ever said was, or you know, what do you think, <laughs> something like that, what do you think your greatest contribution was? And I, I really thought about that, right? I was like doing that, I was thinking that, what, what my answer was right before we started. Hmm. And I think it was my comment that if you don't teach your children to be alone, they'll only know how to be lonely. In other words, the importance of solitude to relationship. Because it's when we know how to be alone, which, of course, social media and the computer and the constant connectivity and the constant screens and lights and takes away from us. It's so seductive. It's the ability to do that that gives me my sense of self so that when you meet me, you're meeting another self and you have the feeling that I can exist by myself and I'm not just there to sort of suck you dry and you want to be with me because you feel as though you're with somebody you can be in a relationship with. Well, there's another person, which means there's a little bit of friction, right? There's Yes, and that, exactly. There's that sense of relationship because I can be alone, you can be alone. There's that it's like two different people. And that capacity for solitude is really something that it it's an assault on empathy. It's an assault on solitude is an assault on empathy. And that really is the danger of computation. And if everybody is just at their screens all the time, independent of what they're doing there, it's not about content, you know, you're going to lose that. And uh, I think a little bit, I've gotten that message out. But when I and with parents now, I'm researching now kind of where we are now post-pandemic, and they're in a special place. <laughs> and now they're like, oh, I'm just, I know it's bad for my child to use a phone, but I'm just like, I'm just looking at this one thing. I have to have my phone out. I'm just looking at this one thing from work. From their child's point of view, they're not with the child, yeah. you know, so... I don't really feel that my, although I feel as though I've gotten this message across a little bit, I feel people are very drawn to their phones just because I have this little thing I need to. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The most important thing you said for me, and we put it, you said it when we interviewed you for uh, Digital Nation, this documentary yeah. I did with uh, Rachel Dredson for Frontline. You said we were talking about kids and phones and you said, oh, you know, the, the, it's the kids who are complaining. It's the yeah. kids who are complaining that their parents are on the phone. And then we right. ended up, I was, I thought was so important to me. We ended up using it as the promo for right. the movie because I was like, even if they don't watch it, they need to hear this. They need to hear this. Right. Like they're complaining exactly. about their kids on the phone. Their kids are complaining about them. Yes. And that continues today. Yeah. Because the kids just want attention and they go to their parents and the parents are going, I just need this. It's that gesture. I just need this one. I just need this one. I just need this one. And that is, it's, it's kind of a universal but I had another question I wanted to yeah. ask you that struck me when I was reading your book is that it seems like, you know, your people are so intrepid, like, you know, they'll, they'll go to the moon, they'll go to Mars, they'll do anything to get, you know, they're, but they seem to be afraid of AI. Right. And I thought that your stories about why they seem to be afraid of AI were very compelling and then you weren't quite sure and you were speculating. So could you just talk a little bit about that? I thought that was really an interesting, if you don't mind. Yeah, it was weird. It's always that elephant in the room for them that when you mentioned they, they, they're they so progressive, I mean, are, are thinking about the future and building this and building that and you mention AI and they just stop. It's like, <laughs> it's like you know, you could talk about anything, you know, the killing of children and, and enslaved babies and they're keep going, whatever. But AI, they, they stop. And I think, you know, I think it's because they believe that just as they're trying to go meta on us, that AI is the one thing that could go meta on them, that it's the one thing that can kind of become this this environment or atmosphere that will that will will supplant them. And I was at, well, I could say where I was at. I was at, I went to a Foo conference, Friends of O'Reilly. Did you ever get invited to one of those? He's this yeah. um, publisher guy. And I went to it. And these are all the people running the companies. This was another, you know, Tech Bro Elite uh, event. And this guy comes up to me, one of the big social media developers. And he says, you know, Rushkoff, 
you've been writing a lot of negative stuff about AI. Aren't you concerned? I'm like, what? He goes, you know, that when the AIs are in charge, they're going to read what you wrote and identify you as an enemy. And God knows what they'll do to you then. And, and then he said, I don't write. I'm meticulous about not posting anywhere publicly about AI and all. And I said, well, if AIs are that smart and they've done all this, you know, pattern recognition and machine learning, won't they be able to identify from your exclusion of AI, from your pattern of posts, that you are also afraid of AI? And his, his jaw drops like, oh, my God. Uh, uh, like, I don't know what he's going to go do. Now he's going to do random AI posts. But that fear, it's because, I guess, because they... I thought this was one of the funniest. When I got to this part of your book, I just howled. I just totally howled because I just thought, wow, I had not come across... You know, I've been around the block, but I have never met someone who was so concretely worried about the AIs coming that they were changing their social media life in order to not make the AIs angry. Like right. I was, I said, whoa, Doug is really mixing with a higher class of people than I am. It is odd. I mean, I do know teenagers that don't post certain things smartly online because they think colleges or future employers yeah, will look yeah, at it. Yeah, That's but the idea logical. That, <laughs> but the idea that I, and I thought, well, yeah, I'm not watching enough Black Mirror. I, you know, these guys are like, this is how you tell a true believer. Although I once shared a limo yeah. with Ray Kurzweil going to a meeting and yeah. really had a chance, you know, and I knew that Ray Kurzweil wants to upload, you know, really has concrete plans to upload himself onto a computer in the hopes that it will be advanced enough by the time he has to do that, that he can... Um, download himself, you know, when the time comes and be re-embodied and mm -hmm. that what he has on the computer will be enough of him, enough of his brain to be recognizably his consciousness. So I knew that theoretically, maybe I'd written about it. I mean, I certainly had spoken about it as a sort of AI fantasy, but it wasn't until like a, I don't know, like a four hour limo ride to this meeting that I, I realized, and this is to your point about believing it enough that you're worried that the AIs are watching you and might be getting mad if you didn't post the right thing. You know, it's like I wasn't aware of how deeply he believed that this was, how deeply this was his plan. Mm. You know, sort of in the same way that I kind of hope, even though I don't believe there's a God, I sort of hope there maybe is because then I could meet my mother someday. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, he sort of really wants to meet his dad again yeah. in his AI life and hopes he will. And, you know, it's, it's not, I mean, I, I began to feel a very sympathetic, warm, deeper comprehension of how deeply th these were beliefs about what digital technology could do for him. And so when I read this section about AI and fearing this thing that they've been making all their lives and hoping for yeah. and building, and I, I was very moved because it really is a kind of double consciousness that the, your child, it really, you were really writing about people creating children right. who were going to come back to hurt you. Mm. 
in a way. And I thought that was very profound. It's funny. I, I was also thinking, though, that some of it may be kind of displaced guilt over everybody that's had to suffer for them to get where they are. In other words, when I see a movie like Terminator and the enslaved robots are revolting against us, it's like, well, this is a society that was built on the backs of enslaved people. So, you know, the fantasy that the robots are going to get you feels in a way like like karmic retribution or comeuppance for... It's more the souls of history that we're looking at, the Mayan civilization that the conquistadors destroyed, you know, not the robots that are so mad. Well, you know, it's funny. I just watched for the second time Westworld. Mm. Have you seen Westworld? Is that the whole thing? Has that been a passion? Yeah. So the people make the robots so that they can express their hostility, aggression, get out their worst, you know, and then it turns out they're making the robots so they can control the people. And then the robots who've been oppressed and abused say, oh, the hell with this, you know, we would like to have a better society. We don't want to be oppressed. I'm summarizing. Yeah. And then they make their society. And in the end, what they most want is to have the imperfections and serendipity and kind of free will of the outlier people, the few outlier, you know, they're craving that thing that humans, that little bit of free will, that little bit of serendipity. And the it, idiosyncrasy. Yeah. That idiosyncrasy. And the robots are kind of chasing that. And it becomes clear that they're going to die. The robots will die chasing that. And mm-hmm. it's not clear who lives. Maybe some robot, a couple of robots will figure out how to, the people won't be there, but maybe some robots will figure out how to chase that and, or it'll just be in their heads. But that's what they're chasing. I mean, the, the robots want to become like the people originally were. And it's so interesting that at the end of this complicated, brilliant opera of about human nature and desire, and you have this glorification of what we are trying to currently dis- get rid of in ourselves. Right. And I was so struck that this would be the, you know, the hit, you know, the... The fantasy, you know, our our techno fantasies now are really glorifying what we are trying to get rid of in ourselves. I mean, look at all this zombie apocalypse things. The heroes are people who live just to have that little human desire, that little one moment of human free will or sexuality or Mm -hmm. idiosyncrasy or... So I think we're just at a very funny moment where everything you say in your book is true about where the culture is driving to. And I'm very concerned about the corporate embrace of the metaverse as a kind of new trope of desirability, perfectibility, where we should be educating, how we should be living, clean and better. And at the same time that our imaginative lives are ever more taken up with these other things, really the things that you and I are talking about. Right. Well, once they can control our dreams, then those those things will go away too, right? I mean, it's almost like that would be what dream control is for, is to get rid of that, that last urge for the soft, squishy, weird, unpredictable nature 
of really being human because it's not efficient. It does, it's not productive. Right. 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 <laughs> no, right. I hear you. And then I look back, you know, at, at not just the invention of capitalism, but even the sort of invention of empirical science, which was so important for us on the one hand. But when I read the Royal Academy of Sciences, scientists or read Francis Bacon and see that he says, you know, empirical science will allow us to take nature by the forelock, hold her down and submit her to our will. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, they really are trying to get away. They want to just quantify every little thing and render it, you know, like a, a dead butterfly with a pin in it. It's it's right. There was this fear of women and nature and, and witches and moisture and you know, <laughs> darkness uh, that right. I guess now we're realizing as we move into a, this technocracy. Oh, that that stuff, the stuff that they talk about in Westworld or the stuff of a David Lynch movie is where it happens. Well, that's the history of science. That's the history of science that Francis right. Bacon. I mean, it was just the domination and domination of women is is the story of the empiricist tradition. And the fact that we didn't hear it as such is really because your ear becomes so used to the discourse of your time that you don't hear that when I go back, I'm just going through my archives now and, and mm. organizing my archives. And when I go back and look at the, the books that I read that were published when I was in college and graduate school, all of the sociology of science books were about dominating nature. And I read them and I said, that's right. We dominate <laughs> nature. Yeah. We, you know, the, the science texts were about dominating nature and that was good. Yeah. So the books you read when you were learning introductory science was about how science neutrally dominated nature. You can't neutrally dominate nature. That's not a neutral thing to dominate nature. Let's just back up. How do you neutrally dominate? I mean, the, the language right. was really of submission and control and domination as opposed to, as you suggest in your writing, and so many feminists, and as, as, the, as sort of the revisionist history of science pointed out, and as you point out in your book, it excludes that language of collaboration, of nurturing, of working together with nature. And what's interesting is, is that even as I learned that new history of science and technology, which said, look, let's talk about collaborating and pluralism and a new way of talking about working with nature, computation went right back to the old language. Right. It, it's sort of like it sort of said, "Well, that's that's fine for the you know that's fine for the fancy history of science people. They're on a fascinating track. We'll go back to the old. We'll, we'll, we we like the other language better." Yeah. And specific, the language itself, slaves, slaves and servers. And I mean, exactly, they use exactly. the actual language. Exactly. Just to make and sure like, we frame abort, it this way. Kill, abort. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like they were saying, you know, there's this new, very interesting, fascinating stuff that like Turkle is writing about and Evelyn Pucks Keller. And, but let's just ignore that. Let's just do kill, abort. <laughs> you know, God, not a problem for us. The thing I wonder, though, is, I mean, on the one hand, I get science as dominating nature. I understand some of the impulse for that because it's like, okay, so then on the other side, it's like Lyme disease. 
So we have science <laughs> to like stop Lyme disease. That's nature's Lyme disease, right? That's all that's there is bugs infecting <laughs> us with things, right? Or witches, you know, putting spells on us, which is even worse. But do you think the impulse to dominate nature comes from a sweet, understandable place? You know, at hundreds of thousands of years as sort of monkey people getting attacked by saber-toothed tigers and hiding under, you know, in caves, hoping not to be killed, led us to want to dominate nature because we were afraid. I mean, is it a natural, fine impulse that's just now overstayed its welcome? Or did it come from this, an unnecessary kind of, I guess, psychological problem? Well, I don't think there's an either or because you have indigenous, you have indigenous peoples all over the world who made a different kind of bargain, who said, let's work in collaboration with nature. Mm. Let's strike a different kind of deal. Let's take totem animals and uh, let's see how we can use the fruits and berries and make medicines from them and how to, you know, how can we live in this environment without, you know, in some yeah. kind of uh, collaboration with it. Exactly. I know. I've seen books with, you know, pictures of um, living bridges they've made from living vines. Yeah. So a living so, bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what <laughs> you can't do with that is the sort of creative destruction, which you so mm. lovely, you know, which you so cleverly call, no, it's not creative destruction, it's destructive destruction. But, you know, what you can't do is the destroy, accumulate, grow. You can't have a certain kind of capitalist accumulation, inequality, large fortune. You know, I mean, you, a certain kind of thing can't happen, which I think does depend on raw materials. Uh, and it took a while for people to say, oh, raw materials. I wonder how we can gather and husband them at the same time. I mean, I think what's interesting is that there's a kind of voraciousness, a rapaciousness in the way in which capitalism developed. There were so many points at which capitalism understood that you could temper. My grandfather had a saying is that, that a good businessman knows how to leave a nickel on the table. He knows how to leave a dollar on the table. And that in the course of this progression, it's as though technology never wanted to leave a nickel on the table. You know, it's kind of like yeah. Mark Zuckerberg refused to leave a nickel on the table. Facebook could have been a very profitable company without becoming the rapacious collector yeah. of personal information and destroyer of democratic infrastructure. Right. He wouldn't have to be giving back 99% of his income to charity. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, he had, there was another path. Yes. And he didn't take it. He didn't take it. There are these choice points where, you know, it was kind of like, shall I collect data unknowingly from people who think they're filling out a survey about what hair color they would <laughs> prefer <laughs> and really give it away to people who were trying to, you know, and he didn't take that other path. So there's that there's a kind of rapaciousness that capitalism has. And also a kind of uh, lying about what you're doing 
Mm. I mean, one of the interesting things about Facebook is they tried to do something. People revolted. They said, okay, we're not doing that. And then they did it anyway without telling people over and over again in the history of the company. And that's been typical of how the internet company, how this industry has worked, is that when people have objected, they've done it anyway, just not telling people. So I think I've gotten away a little bit in the weeds with my examples rather than answer your story, is I think that there doesn't seem to be a capacity at the moment to work this technology in the more humanistic, collaborative way that we might want. Now, the question is, when things get really bad and it's discovered that we really can't go to the moon and fix it by going to a space colony, will we all be forced to, into a new social contract? Not Peter Thiel's and not J.D. Vance's, but will we be forced by the, I think, the climate crisis into not an authoritarian social contract, but into a more collaborative one. And I think that's the choice point. That, that's what I'm trying to write about now is that I think mm. that's the choice point we stand at now. Because I think that it's not going to go on as it is. You know, no matter when you think this point is coming, it's coming because it can't go on as it is. And will this crisis get us into an authoritarian fantasy that only strong men and and authoritarian governments can make these decisions for us and kind of enslave us and, you know, I, I don't know what. Or can we learn to live more collaboratively with this technology? I mean, and that's where I'm interested in your expertise as a psychologist and sociologist, because I've always seen myself as something, as a writer, as a an amateur public psychologist. I mean, I've been through psychotherapy, but I'm trying to do it uh, at large through the work. You're like a social psychologist for the world. In some sense, <laughs> yeah, we're trying to be. And I'm trying to look at what is the way to, to heal and develop. So for most of my books, I was just kind of yelling at people, which is fine, just shaking sense, you know, and, and people who agreed with me really got it, which, <laughs> which was wonderful. It created a, a sense of, uh, of reinforce, positive reinforcement for people who were thinking that way. And I don't criticize myself for that, for preaching to the choir, because it helped me and it helped the choir. God bless. And it, it brought on some new people. But what I tried to do in this one, I thought, and I didn't realize it till maybe halfway through writing the book, was I'm writing a comedy. These are laugh out loud moments because these people are so silly so that if I can make Musk and Teal and Zuckerberg and the heroes of, you know, tech bro culture look as, you know, not in a mean way, but as silly, as scared and silly as they are, then we won't feel as afraid of what they're doing. So we'll be maybe more empowered to do something about it. And we won't feel compelled to imitate them. They're not our role. They're not, you know, the non-castrated male role model of Steve Bannon. You know, when you see him and you understand what he's doing and saying and how he exploited Gamergate and what's going on, it's like, oh, these are silly little boys. I don't have to worry about that. But I'm wondering what long term, though, other than a depression-like catastrophe that requires us to form collectives and communes and work together and find local food, what might engender the kinds of, of connection 
that you're offering us, you know, those of us who are having conversations publicly and are writing and are creating cultural artifacts, I guess, what should we be working towards? What are some of the best paths you see toward making people less afraid of each other, um, less needing to escape and to go, you know, one level up or to dominate? What, in other words, what works? Even if we're going to hit the crisis, um, I feel like the same things we could do to try to avoid the crisis are going to prepare us how to deal with it when it comes. Yes, you make that point in your book, and I thought that was, let me just signal to you, or people who were listening that this is a point you make in the book, and I think you, it is one of the strong, strong points in the book, that the things you do to prepare for a crisis are the things that will help you when the crisis comes. I believe in that very strongly. And so to answer your question with that thought, that the things that you, that will help us reanimate a democratic society, a collaborative society, able to work in community and deal with some of these problems is a society that we can start building now where we're not afraid to rejoin community and start again, even if there, even if three people come to the meeting, community-based organizations where you look at your neighbor and say, what are we going to do to make this community better? Because we need to figure out a way to get people to the polls and make people not afraid of bullies. And we need to make people who think that their best interest is served by, you know, being afraid of immigrants say, no, actually, uh, your best interest is not served by being afraid of immigrants. You know, you can integrate immigrants into this community, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. You know, how to make people resistant to authoritarianism, I think is really the job of in this country, certain I mean in this country certainly, but I think of democracies all over the world. If you're in a democracy, you can disagree, you can talk, you can you can have a period where you've lost and then come back. You mm. know, you're not I mean, I remember, you know, I'm, I'm a Democrat, you know, and I remember finding the Reagan years and the Bush years very dark. And many things happened in those years that I think we're, we still haven't kind of come back from. Right. But we weren't annihilated. We existed. We weren't yeah, annihilated. Exactly. Right. But I remember thinking, well, I'm just going to get very involved in politics. I really believe in this country and I am redoubling my efforts. And what the danger is, is that people are now saying, oh, my God, nothing can happen here. Uh, the Supreme Court gone, voting rights gone, women's rights gone. I'm going to the metaverse. Mm. That's to me is that that's where technology meets politics in a way that is terrifying. It's, you know, Hannah Arendt talked about authoritarianism being prepared by people who felt so alienated that there was nothing they could do. They were just, they didn't know anybody. They didn't know their neighbors. They didn't, you know, they just were so alone that they felt they couldn't act. And in reclaiming conversation, I, I talk about the number of people that Americans say they know that they could call in case of an emergency has like gone from four to three to two to less than one, that means like many people have nobody and one people like have a half a person and whatever that means. 
that we don't know people. We're so out of community. So, I mean, to get to your question, I mean, I, I, I think that the thing to do is to work on the what probably for many people seems like the most boring stuff anything that's not in <laughs> anything that's not in virtual reality it's the survival of the most connected but the most connected in face to face ways you can organize online i'm not against online things but you organize online in order to bring people into communities where they feel that they have a, a true stake in each other because they live on the same block, in the same community, they breathe the same air. And I don't think it's the same as saying, well, I'm just in the same, you know, cabal of game players. Right. No, it's a whole different, it brings a whole different meaning to the word connected, right? Right. Today, connected means online in the same affinity group, but you're talking about connection as live face-to-face, oxytocin, mirror neuron, complex connection. The atmosphere is toxic in your community. And your congressman doesn't care because he voted against all clean air bills. He, you know, he has, he's taking payback from the companies. I mean, he really doesn't care. You need to be able to band with the citizens in your community to clean up that air. And if all you have is some group of people you, from all around the world that you play a game with, you're defanged. You don't have your people. You can't improve your school system. You can't improve your air. You can't improve your water. I mean, look at these poor people in Jackson, Mississippi. Their government didn't care. And now they yeah. now they have to start banding together community by community, block by block, and figure out how to take that government back because they need to get some water. They need to get a government that cares about water. And they didn't have one. And the interpersonal connection is a prerequisite to the solidarity that they need to organize. And yes. to that, I kind of want to ask, and maybe it's a good way to, to end this. One of the, the questions in our in our email thread back and forth was, uh, you know, what's the most important connection that you've made? And how does that sort of inform your own your own sense of the connection and solidarity we need, you know, writ large? I think that the most important connections I've made have been with over the years with readers Mm. who have read my work, who've written to me, I've written back, and I've started life, career-long conversations with people all over the country, some of which have turned into collaborations, these students visiting. Uh, It isn't one person. It's feeling, you know, I don't feel as though I've made a difference because... Some company has adopted my views. I don't have that kind of Hmm. sense. I have a sense that there's a kind of hidden army of school teachers (laughs) who (laughs) who were just saying no when when their school hands them some ready-made metaversial thing. And I feel as though I've had a part in making those connections. Parents who have a different kind of sensibility about being online as they're trying to talk to their children. Uh, Colleagues like you, I I think we have a, I I think there are a group of people who, uh, who know who we are and who are, and who feel like we're kind of an invisible college of, of a shared discourse that in different parts of this, of this story are trying to, from different points of view, um, put on the brakes. Now, I think 
you know, the question I would leave you with, you know, as a final question is, you know, what do you think are the most effective ways to act next? You know, this book, it is a comedy. It, 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 there, there are just laugh out loud moments. It makes these people seem, you know, at the very least approachable. I mean, the story of this guy who doesn't want to who doesn't want to upset the AIs because they might come from, I mean, you know, at the very least, these people seem approachable and not scary, but you know, what is the way to slow this down? Because I think that's really the goal. It's not, it's not like to, you know, is there a strategy for slowing this down as you see it? And it's interesting. It's just even saying slow this down is fighting words against the GDP and exponential growth. I don't think it's like, oh, we're going to have a law that's going to, I don't think it's like, you yeah. know, I think these things like we're going to make AI illegal. No, we're going to, am I going to get no. people to stop the dream work? No. But how can we get people to slow it down enough so that more people can think twice? Right. I'm slowing it down. I mean, but I mean, slowing it down is the enemy of the market, right? Slowing it down is literally, how do we apply some friction? <laughs> to this. It's the opposite of the opening, your, your opening salvo of the tech bro dream of a frictionless world. I think the way we do that is it's so simple, but but people don't believe me, is you unplug and meet your neighbors. You know, one tactic I thought was going back to, you know, when I was a kid, Shabbat, Sabbath, take one day a week where you don't buy or sell, where you don't go online, where you're screen free, and it will for, and you don't even go in a car. You don't use industry. Is there a park? Are there neighbors? Do I know anybody? And however scary it is, you just meet people, do favors for people, accept favors from people, you know, and and start that, that small, you know, take a project like uh, ask, you know, why should everyone on our block each have a minimum viable product lawnmower from Home Depot. What if we got one good lawnmower for the whole block and we shared it and start that as the opening project, you know, to <laughs> opportunities for interaction. But I mean, for me, it's, it's that easy, you know, and that was the whole team human project. Find the others and first find the others who you can agree with easily, the others you like, and then find the other others, you know, and, and I'm meeting the other others now in my community. They're just like us. They have the same fears, the same wants the same hopes, their basements get flooded the same way, their grandparents get the same diseases. It's like, oh, wow, they're just like me. So I'm, I'm learning that way, you know, and it and don't try to scale your solution. It, <laughs> it doesn't scale. Finally, it could be repeated. But it's just it's just people. And so it's sort of it's that making time to unplug seeing these activities, playing cards, making love, hanging out, Find old people in your town. They're so smart. I hang out with, I mean, because I work now. I have a little office in my town. I go and I sit with with what elderly people with their little dogs and stuff and talk to them. They're, they lived longer than me through more periods of time. They're wise. They're, you know, I'm learning more from them than I am, you know, reading whatever freaking article online right now. So it's sort of, that's my path. Well, on that note, amen. <laughs> amen. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sherry, for for everything. Well, this has just been the greatest pleasure. We have to do this more often. Got to cheer each other up.
Yeah, I'm more than happy to drive out to wherever that is on the Cape and uh-huh. find you and just sit on the front stoop. Well, I'm not one of your old people, so. <laughs> no, I know you're not. You're my generation. You're my generation. I, I mean, just, as long uh, as we get, just as long as we get that straight. I'm not one of your uh, old people, sure. but I have much wisdom. You do. No. And more than that, you got more than wisdom. Uh, you got you got that just that thing, that X factor human thing. I see the life in you, in your eyes. And that's Yeah, I'm not I'm not uploading to a robot. I don't I don't think it's happening. Thank you. Please okay. Don't. Well thank you for inviting me. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. This has been a great pleasure and I wish you and your extraordinary book, which I I mean, you see, I just like, you know, <laughs> devoured and re-devoured. I love this book. I recommend it to everybody, Survival of the Richest. But I think it's Survival of the Bros, the techno bros. Yeah. I'm not sure it's You're just right. the richest. So, anyway, best of luck I with it. You. It's a great book. Thank you. Thank you. Love you. Bye-bye. And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today, my hero, Sherry Turkle, professor at MIT, the author of Reclaiming Conversation and The Empathy Diaries and other books. You can find out more about her at sherryturkle.com, or you can come to teamhuman.fm and find out about her and all of our guests. I really, I can't thank Sherry enough for, um, gosh, the affirmation that, that, that last hour uh, was for me and and I hope for you and all and all thinking feeling humans as well Team Human was produced by Joshua Chaplin and edited by Luke Robert Mason I'm Douglas Rushkoff and you've been on Team Human our last best hope for peeps <laughs> <laughs>